We are confronted primarily with a moral issue. I know you're asking today, how long will it take? If our children should live to see the next century, what change will they see? What progress will we have made? If we do not combat climate change, I, I fear very much the kind of world that we're leaving to our kids. I will not take no for an answer, and I hope you won't either. The world is rapidly changing, and when we face threats to our rights, our lives, we must stand together. We must recognize our strengths. We must look past our differences, and we must fight for each other. The Orion Herald calls to the people of Earth, for if we do not ensure now that democracy prevails, that human rights are protected, and that the planet survives, how do we face tomorrow? Hello, welcome back to the Orion Herald. For today, it'll just be me, F.J. Thomas, uh, otherwise known as DKTC. Today, we will be discussing one of the most important founding documents in the World Federalist Movement, the Montreux Declaration. I believe I'm pronouncing that right, Montreux. It's M-O-N-T-R-E-U-X. So this will be more of a historical episode. I know in these past few weeks, we've been discussing primarily U.S.-based latest news and 2020 related issues but i thought it would be best for this episode to kind of go back to some unexplored history because on the topic of world federalist movements and socialist movements and environmentalist movements kind of being unsung going unseen you know i think world federalist history especially is very unseen it's not a very new movement it's not something you know it's not something we're doing for the first time. What Orion is doing, what partners like the World Federalist Movement, Young World Federalists are doing, it's been founded on generations, decades and decades, almost a century of labors of love put into this idea. And I mean, that's just speaking of mo- the foundations for modern movements. The idea of World Federalism has existed largely as long as the idea of empires have existed. I mean, world federalism and the idea of one world government stems largely from this old-time desire to rule the world. And I mean, that's not what world federalism is about. It's about governing the world, but ruling and governing aren't the same thing. What one must understand to understand world federalism is that to rule the world in the most maniacal, mad scientist, imperial sense is... For one part of the world to have a sort of superiority over every part of the world, for one party to go into every other territory and dominate and use other nations, other peoples as tools. But that's not what world federalism is about, because world federalism is governing the world. Other parts, all these parts of the world, you know, these people, they're not just slaves, they're not objects under this kind of imperial boot heel. No, in world federalism, these are citizens, and in democratic world federalism, these citizens are power for the government, stemmed from these citizens. World federalism is about every citizen, every human being in the world being part of the mechanism, being part of the governing force that governs the world. It's everyone gets representation, everyone is contributing to this idea of, a na- of one nation. And they may contribute to it, depending on your model, you may have a bunch of separate nations with 
one government kind of coordinating them all. One, one authority that manages most of it, but not only do the people of the world still have input into them or into how that government manages things, but you also have all these separate states, governments that have to some degree their own control over themselves. So far from the idea of the, the shadow Illuminati one world order that you wouldn't think because world federalism is such kind of a niche movement that it was a thing, but I've seen people thinking that world federalism is book of revelations, the antichrist bringing about order of the devil. And that's ridiculous. It's just, it's just democracy taken to the next level. It's just having a coordinated system of democracy where everyone still votes. All the people, all the people managing the government are just rep elected representatives. It's no different than any democratic nation. It's just one step higher, a further step of organization building off of that. Now, as I said, moving on from the ancient historical idea of ruling the world, you know, you have these empires like the Roman Empire, you had Alexander the Great, you had the Mongols, whose goal was to control all the known world. And oftentimes, one of the biggest difficulties, as Alexander found out, is that the world is a big place and trying to run it all is no small task, which is why democracy serves as the best form of government is if you delegate authority to smaller states and you have everyone running it through voting and representatives, then you don't have one central authority trying to make decisions for every little problem in all of the world. And Alexander the Great, the are the Romans and even the Mongols, they never conquered the whole world. They may have conquered a lot of it. They may have conquered the known world. But there was much beyond that. And even that was what tore the Roman Empire apart was trying to hold on to so much when, you know, it was an emperor. It was one person trying to make all the decisions from the top. And that proved unsuccessful because you had enemies on all sides and you... And so much territory, so many Roman citizens spread all over that you, that one person could not handle all of that alone. And so in more modern times, in the last few centuries, when this idea came about, because, I mean, you, you still had further empire, pretty much every European, major European power throughout the, what would we call it, last millennium? Yeah, mid-last millennium was trying to become an empire. And, you know, eventually, as we saw, their co whether due to moral reasons or whether due to practical reasons, their own colonies turned against them, became independent, separated themselves from their main nation, which has hold, held true over these last few hundred years. I mean, I believe that there are some colonies still present, but it's very rare, very rare and it's a far cry very far cry from what it used to be. Uh, most colonies in the world, I'd say, have established themselves as nations. Continuing on from that, however, at, so as the age of empires and this idea of, you know, one world authority being, or stemming from one nation, kind of subsided as we saw time and time again that every attempt to rule the world failed, uh, the idea shifted into the hands of more altruistic people who thought 
that sh- are sure, you know, one nation shouldn't rule the world because every na- every imperialist conqueror nation wants to rule the world. And because of that, you know, they were often fighting. They were because they wanted more territory, because they wanted more. These nations would spend lives, spend money, spend so much time fighting each other. And a lot of more altruistic people started to believe, well, if I mean, we have all these problems, but if we were to solve this diplomatically, if we were to say, all right, you know, you need this, you need this, they take some of this, give it to you, you take some of this, give it to them, we're all square. If there was a way of managing all that, then maybe a one world authority, maybe this idea could be practical, but not if one nation rules the rest of the world, but rather all all the nations come together, create a governing authority create a impartial governing authority that manages these nations. So less like an emperor and more like a parliament, which is parliament, democracy, it's or it's the common our republic, it's this is what world federalism, modern world federalism was kind of founded on. Because I mean, federalism implies a federal government, but fe- Federal governments and federalism often comes hand in hand with smaller governments, with subservient governments, but still governments. Like uh, my nation, the U.S., we have the U.S. federal government, but the state, even though people don't pay attention to the state governments as much, state governments have a lot of leeway, and many movements for change start with state governments and work their way up to federal governments. Because once you are, because once you have. If you go state by state, you gain much more of a power base than simply lobbying for attention in the federal government, which is how I know it's how the it was how the uh, suffrage movement our suffrage movement um, before 1920 operated was they went state by state from the west to the east until they had enough states that they could have or enough of a kind of voting presence through these state representatives to push for women's suffrage, and so. That's kind of the evolution is that na- this nationalist idea that one nation could rule the world is it's not feasible, it's impractical, and it's you know not taking into consideration other nations. But the world federalist movement that is kind of solidified over the past few centuries has ca- actually been, you know, even though they both have the same idea of one world government, world federalism arguably developed in response to these ideas of, hey... We've been, you know, we've been fighting for most of our history and there's some where we're approaching much more serious issues than this. And I would hazard to guess that the Industrial Revolution probably expedited these realizations with the effects it had on the environment. But, hey, we have these issues. And if we keep fighting the same old silly fight, we're going to waste all our resources. We're going to waste people's lives. We're going to waste so much time. And you're not going to win in the end. No empire has lasted forever no one's ever been able to rule the world but we in response to all these nations that can't get their stuff together we could have an authority that doesn't doesn't take the lion's share doesn't rule but instead goes for what's best so kind of altruistic answer to this imperialist idea of conquering the whole world and if the Industrial Revolution might have expedited the formation of that, these ideas, the World Wars certainly expedited... World War I and World War II in the early 1900s certainly, definitely expedited the movement and the action behind that. So, World War I happens. 
And after World War One, before World War One, you had all these nations kind of with the same idea of, you know, we want war because we want to win war. We want to gain more. And they got they rapidly militarized and industrialized. They made the, all these alliances because they were itching for war. They were itching for more territory because that's what they had done for centuries in Europe, which they had constantly fought against each other. They had constantly fought for territory in the New World and Africa. They had constantly fought for better political footholds and territorial footholds in Europe. And that's what they thought was going to happen. But because of all this industrialization, because of all this military development, when they actually went to fight World War I, it was brutal, inhumane. And they pulled back from that and they were shocked that oh my god this is what war has become i mean this is what war always was just more intensified and they started to go along the direction of we can't let this happen again if this is what war is we need to kind of be more responsible be more accountable and so they took one step with that with the league of nations but the league of nations was more of an alliance and Instead of just kind of divvying up and doing what was best for the people, they still kind of had these national identity ideas. And, you know, Germany got all the blame. And I'm not, I'm not defending Germany, but I'm not defending Germ- our Germany's actions in World War II, but I'm saying that the Germ- that are the decision to put all the blame not on, are on Germany and thus put a lot of the workload of kind of revitalizing Europe on the German people, put them in the position that they could be more easily manipulated when it came time for the rise of the Nazi Party in World War II. Because you had these German people, after being, you know, they were ruled by Kaiser Wilhelm. And I'm, I'm sure there was plenty of, are plenty of Germans that willingly fought, but consider that, you know, maybe not every German sit... German citizen then, you know, was so gung-ho about war. Maybe they weren't all on board to go fight and go die in trenches. But it was their government, so they had to. And then, you know, after years of one of the worst wars, rapidly becoming, you know, a losing side, then they have to spend years, they're already in debt, and then they have to spend years paying off their debt. And then the Great Depression comes, and it hits them, the arguably hits them the worst of all. It makes sense that the German people would have anger. And in that kind of blindness of anger, they they step aside and let the Nazi party and Hitler take power. And because of that, now this history repeats itself. And history repeats itself because the League of Nations didn't learn their lesson. It's because as besides that brief moment of lucidity of you know, we should work together, we should kind of manage things and be diplomatic and democratic about this. Stop seeing things, stop trying to be so separate as nations and just work together and get the world stuff together rather than just our own individual stuff together. Um, they That brief moment of lucidity was brief and they just continued on and, oh, well, but it was Germany's fault. Yeah, so let's pin the blame on them. And then over time, the League of Nations became kind of ineffective and drifted apart because they had commitment issues. And then World War II happened. And World War II was, I, I, I guess it could be arguable, but I'm going to say World War II was even worse than the First War. And after that, we came to the same sort of situation where, same sort of situation a bit better, where they came and they founded the United Nations. And they said, all right, we've been through two world wars. 
each time it got more terrible, more intense because our technology keeps increasing. And this war ended with a weapon that could vaporize cities. And if these weapons are going to keep increasing in strength, we could run into the end of the world as we know it. We barely escaped the end of the world as we know it just then. You know, that was an intense war. So maybe we should form this United Nations, this kind of sort of sort of government that manages all the nations. And then that moment of lucidity ends again because, oh, well, Russia's communist. So let's go attack them. Let's go... Or we're not, I mean, we're going to let that tension ruin everything that's built up through the UN. And at this point, I mean, through the 30s, uh, th- this episode is about the Monto- Montreux Declaration. So I'm not going to go into the full detailed history. I'm just kind of giving an outline. And so after, or after World War One, you know, people started to kind of move together, form organizations around this idea of war can't happen again. And... We have problems, so let's let's have an a, authority, kind of an adult in the room that can kind of manage all these nations because for most of history, they've been fighting against each other, and now we can't afford... To, it was never right for them to fight, but we can't afford to fight, keep fighting each other anymore. And then World War II happened and showed that, you know, we hadn't learned our lesson, and we still didn't learn our lesson because we were so afraid of socialism that we were willing to split the war and put us on the edge of nuclear war. And so these organizations had enough. The UN wasn't enough. And the U- and once again, the biggest problem with the UN is commitment issues on, its mem- on the part of its member nations. So in Montreux, which it's near Geneva. It's like a small town near Geneva. Where is Montreux? I remember, it, I know it's near Gen- Geneva. All right. Montreux is a municipality in a Swiss town on the shoreline of Lake Geneva at the foot of the Alps. So... Another or another Swiss town, um, away from Geneva, but five of these organizations, or five of these organizations, in 1947 decide. So this is two years after the end of the war in Japan, and the end of the war period. These organizations got together, or and they had a convention of their own. I mean, obviously, you had conventions that formed the UN, but then you had private these private organizations that said, "All right, enough is enough." And they formed, or they formed what would become the World Federalist Movement in this town of Geneva. And what I'm here to talk about to you today is the Montreux Declaration, which at the or at the end of this grand convention, where you know they laid the groundwork for laid the groundwork for what for years has been this massive international movement to push for World Federation. To kind of summarize their thoughts, they put down the Montreux Declaration, an official document uh, signed on 20th, the 23rd of August, 1947. In August 1947, earlier that year, you started the, you started the movement towards this convention uh, in Asheville, North Carolina, when you had the United World Federalist Forum from five small organizations. But later that year, they were able to get enough, or enough momentum to meet in Montreux and ha- or have the the conference of the world Met movement for world federal government which was you know this was kind of a i mean there were sparks earlier but to me this was kind of a spark that really let let us down the road to the world federalist movement as it is today so at this conference are 51 organizations 
pinned this or pinned this document I'm about to read to you are with the intent not just to kind of summarize what we need in the wake of World War II, why the UN is not the best shot for it, but how the World Federalist Movement would go about achieving it. So it wasn't enough to just state a need, complain why the current action nation was enough, but they also laid down the groundwork with this document for the mission or for the kind of ongoing mission that you know we're undertaking today as a whole. And I'm about to read the Montreux Declaration to you. We World Federalists meeting in Montreux at the first international congress of the World Movement for World Federal Government call upon the peoples of the world to join us in our work. We are convinced that mankind cannot survive another world conflict. Two years have passed since the fighting ended, but Europe and Asia are still strewn with the wreckage of war. The work of rehabilitation is paralyzed. The people suffer from lack of shelter, food, and clothing, while the nations waste their substance in preparing to destroy each other. The second attempt to preserve peace by means of a world organization, the United Nations, is powerless, as at present constituted to stop the drift of war. We world federalists are convinced that the establishment of a world federal government is the crucial problem of our time. Until it is solved, all other issues, whether national or international, will remain unsettled. It is not between free enterprise and planned economy, nor between capitalism and communism that the choice lies, but between federalism and power politics. Federalism alone can assure the survival of man. We world federalists affirm that mankind can free itself forever from war only through the establishment of a world federal government. Such a federation must be based on the following principles. Number one, universal membership. The world federal government must be open to all peoples and nations. Number two, limitation of national sovereignty and the transfer to the world federal government of such legislative, executive, and judicial powers as relate to the world affairs. Number three, Enforcement of world law directly on the individual, whoever or wherever he may be, within the jurisdiction of the world federal government. Guarantee the rights of man and suppression of all attempts against the security of the federation. Number four, creation of supranational armed forces capable of guaranteeing the security of the world federal government and of its member states. Disarmament of member nations to the level of their internal policy and requirements. Number five, ownership and control by the world federal government of atomic development and of other scientific discoveries capable of mass destruction. Number six, power to raise adequate revenues directly and independently of state taxes. We propose to make use of any reasonable methods which can contribute to the early achievement of world federal government to prevent another world war. We consider that integration of activities at regional and functional levels is consistent with the true federal approach. The formation of regional federations, insofar as they do not become an in themselves or, risk, or run the risk of crystallizing into blocks, can and should contribute to the effective functioning of federal government. In the same way, the solution of technical, scientific, and cultural problems, which concern all the peoples of the world, will be made easier by the establishment of specialist functional bodies. Taking into account these principles, we recommend the following lines of action. Assemblies... Uh, Assemblies to transform the United Nations organization into world federal government by increasing its authority and resources and by amending its charter. Unofficial and concerted action, in particular the pres- our preparation of a world constituent assembly, the plan of campaign for which shall be laid down by the Council of the Movement in close cooperation with the parliamentary groups and federalist movements in the different countries. This assembly, set up in collaboration with organized international groups, shall meet not later than 1950 for the purpose of drawing up a constitution for the world federal government. 
This plan shall be submitted for ratification not only by the governments and parliaments, but also to the peoples themselves. Every possible effort shall be made to get the world federal government finally established in the shortest possible time. Without prejudging the results of these two methods of approach, we must expand our action as quickly as possible, so that we may take advantage of any new opportunities which present themselves to the Federalist cause. One thing is certain, we shall never realize world federal government until, unless all the peoples of the world join in the crusade. More than ever, time presses, and this time we must not fail. Whew. Honestly, I love this document. Uh, you know, I, I read this for the first time just prepare for this episode, but... This sums up a lot of the ideals. I mean, and this sums up a lot of issues very well. A lot of the issues that the wor- World Federalist Movement faces now, the lot of, a lot of the ways, you know, we try to fight. And, I mean, part of that is sad because that means, you know, we haven't ultimately met our goal. But it still gives an approachable groundwork that we can still use. And let's, so let's run through this a bit more in detail. So let's go, let's start back from the top. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll go over some highlights. One one interesting thing I noticed first is the fact that the reasons we need our federation are largely due to the cleanup of war. Now, they make a point that Europe and Asia still have wreckage from World War II, and that hasn't properly been dealt with, and the United Nations isn't properly dealing with it. They're kind of helping, but... The United Nations is overshadowed by this kind of, you know, argument over communism. It's kind of thing that's splitting the world again, but we haven't even finished cleaning up the last war. And so, you know, above everything else, the shadow of war kind of hangs over this de- declaration is, you know, we just got done with through one of the most terrible wars in history. We're still cleaning up. People still need help. And the United Nations is doing nothing while the dividing lines are drawn for the next war. Thankfully, we never actually went into a full-on war on the scale of World War II. But there was still war after this. And those were just, you know, the symptoms of the larger Cold War. So the United Nations wasn't doing anything, or wasn't being competent enough in helping A, clean up, and B, stopping the next one. And that's something I feel is what motivated a lot of or a lot of these early members. Moving on, another thing that was interesting is they make it clear that this is not an economic issue. And I mean, for me, for Orion, it is an economic issue. You know, ego socialist federalism. We're not just world federalism. But another thing you can see how historical events affected this document is they make sure to they make sure to specify. You know. This is not, you know, we're not taking a side. We're not, we're not talking about free enterprise or planned economy. We're not talking about capitalism or communism. And, or in the way they address it, they both speci- or they both try to kind of gain some ground with everyone by saying, you know, we're not taking sides in that. But then they also, the way they phrase it in, it is not between this that the choice lies. They also kind of make it clear that, you know, that's not the, Im- so we're not involved in either side, but that's also not the important thing. So they're making it clear that right now the choice the choice you need to make is not between, you know, are we capitalists or are we communists? Like there it's both kind of a way of playing to playing to the strengths of both sides in the Cold War, but also saying, hey, cut it out, that's not what we need to be focusing on, even if it is. Moving or moving down, I mean a lot of this is pretty basic stuff in world federalism. Universal membership 
in the, one of the basic aspects of a world federation is that everyone is a citizen, everyone can vote. Um, and limitation of national sovereignty, and uh, this would be something in creating a federal government, is that a lot of stuff would be taken over, but our, a lot of like the responsibilities would be taken over, and before any anti-world federalist listeners out there, you know, clutch their Bibles. It doesn't mean that, you know, they're taking over power, but more, you know, it's still, it's democracy, so it's still, the things you do in democracy today, what you would still be doing, it's just, it would be more practical to focus, like, to have larger-scale democracy focus on this. So it's, it's less of a, once again, less of a one-world order and more of transferring something from a state department to a federal department because it's easier to just do it across every state, or in this case, every nation. Enforcement or world law directly in the individual. I mean, yeah, one thing, one important thing about world federalism is the idea that you have these universal standards, universal laws, which largely would be to protect human rights. Because if we have any variability in human rights, if human rights come into question, then we're doing something wrong. We need to make sure universal human rights are protected. It, we can't have unequal treatment of people. Well, unfair unequal treatment, like. I mean, there's also, there's stuff like accommodations for the disabled. Dis- we can't have discrimination in policy and law. And that's an important thing is we need, like, and so an issue the United Nations has today is if you don't make it universal, if you don't, if you don't re- make it a requirement to uphold human rights, then you, then you leave the door open for abuses of human rights. And then you're directly you're directly violating one of your main missions so enforcement of world law is an important thing in world federalism uh creation of supranational armed forces and disarmament of member nations i'd hope you know, in an ideal world federation we wouldn't need as much of a military in, in an ideal world we wouldn't need a military but this is one of the nastier parts is once you have a world Federa- federation established you run the risk of rebellion revolution up uprising crime and that you would need some form of enforcement having that enforcement be se- st- continue to be separate nations just leads to the leads to war as we know it with in the united nations era is nations even the un peak peace corps infamously known for being ineffective and so most nations just stick to their or stick to their own militaries and thus leave the door open for war. Kind of taking away that option might be... I mean, even even if it's ugly to still have a military and only have one government have that military and have that power to make those decisions might be the only way to kind of stop war. It, if you take away the option to make war, might be the only way to condition people to stop war. Ownership and control by the world federal government of atomic development. I mean, sign... Uh, so this is about ma- weapons of mass destruction. This goes kind of under what I was talking about before is kind of iffy on, you know, letting one authority, risky having one authority having all the power uh, to make war because of the possibility of the formation of an oppressive government. But it's also a risk to have feuding nations have this kind of power, especially mass destruction, which puts us at the risk of the end of the world. Uh, and then power to raise adequate revenues independently of state taxes. Yeah, that's just taxation. Man, I'm sure everyone has their opinion on that, but it's kind of necessary. Moving on. One of my favorite lines from this, we propose to make use of any reasonable methods, which can contribute to the early achievement of world federal, federal government to prevent another world war. One of my favorite lines. Because 
that's what we're doing is world are because well this is such like an unseen unpopular concept you know sometimes you have to branch out to use new methods to do whatever it takes i mean reasonable methods so you know nothing immoral nothing unreasonable but you know trying new methods trying new ways to get the word out you know one way is you know in the last few decades is through the internet through uh kind of servers like discord through reddit um kind of through unconventional or unconventional methods to kind of reach these new audiences branch out sending or e- sending emails sending letters to politicians whatever re- or whatever reasonable methods are available has kind of been a t- our tool that these movements have been using is because just asking politicians to stop the cold stop the cold war hasn't worked so all right well let's go to the people let's go to individual representatives let's make billboards let's you know make media or kind of make fiction media with these ideas in it whatever it takes because the end res- as long as you do it morally the end result is worth it no matter how crazy you have to get but don't be immoral don't be unreasonable don't hurt people and the our last few words of that kind of lay out you have the in or you you have the means at the beginning you have what they're doing whatever it takes to do it and then at the end you lay out clearly you know why we need to do this well, we need to do whatever it takes because if we don't, there could be another world war. And could we survive another world war? We don't know. World War Three breaks out. So as soon as someone decides to use a nuclear option, and even today after decades of disarmament, it's all over. That's it. Very high risk that, that that's the final chapter in the book of humanity. Moving on, I, th- I thought it was interesting that they talk about, you know, as long as they're useful and helpful towards the establishment of world federation um the use of regional our regional integration regional federations which seems are seems largely to be a reference to the uh european union i don't know if the european union was formed at this date that might be a topic to broach for another episode but it definitely applies to the european union is a lot of a lot of people claim that to be a good model for what world federalism can be is nations keep their sovereignties. France is still France. Spain is still Spain. Italy is still Italy. But while they have their own identities, while they ha- like, have their own security, they work together. They have you know, standardized currency. They have standardized government. And they're stable. And you know, they're, they are a major world nation both on their own and as part of the union. So as a small test for what world federalism could be, they serve very well to show why these things could work, why these ideas are not just fiction, because they're being tried and they've, they have been tried. They're working. I'm moving on to the back because this is a two-page paper. I'm not really going to go into... Oh, yeah, I do want to go to the second method. So... They mentioned the idea of preparing of a world constituent assembly. And in 1948, I believe, they had another meeting at Luxembourg. Um, they had a few more meetings, and obviously they had meetings over the last century. But they mentioned the idea of drawing up a constitution for the world federal government, which I believe they did, and they've, been, they've you know, proposed it to the UN multiple times. And I believe, that's, or I believe that is one of the most effective ways, is 
if the UN and the politi- are in politicians of the world are not... I mean, we have support for a UNPA from a lot of politicians, but if they're not going to take action and represent the interests of the people, then kind of up to us, the people to organize and say, all right, well, even if our governments are not going for it, well, us, the, we the people kind of agree that we need a world government if, and this is what we think the government should be. And, you know, the people, the concerns of the people are ultimately, you know, what are the basis of government, basis of democratic government. And, I mean, regardless of whether the government accepts it, I think definitely as a motivator, definitely as a draw for more people, and definitely as a way of kind of formulating our thoughts and kind of or- developing a system we can use whenever, you know, whatever happens, happens. I think this idea of co- of organizing and making constitutions, of drafting, of kind of building the structure of this world federal government is probably one of the best strategies that... Um, not not that I dislike the first strategy. I mean, I'm in full support of the UNPA of organizing the United Nations to kind of take more accountability. But I think this this plan interests me. And when I first was building Sword of Orion, when I first was kind of getting this movement, that was kind of, you know, where my head was going is, all right, well, there's all these movements. Get them together and kind of sit down and build it, build our own world federal government. And have the structure ready, have this kind of operational civilian government. And that's still, you know, a plan I have in backups. I think it would be very interesting to get movements, not just world federalist movements, but these major socialist movements, major environmentalist movements, sit down, have this conference, build a civilian government, a a government that kind of manages all these organizations and movements and and moves to our moves to kind of gain prominence within the world, kind of gain political influence and move the UN or move itself into a position to create a world federation. Uh, Last two lines I wanted to bring emphasis to. One thing is certain, we shall never realize world federal government unless all the peoples of the world join the crusade. And that's one of the biggest things as an organization we deal with is the fact that at the moment we're, we're not very big. We're less than 20 people. But... We, we don't call it quits because we're only 20 people. We try to gain more because the more people... I mean, the statement, the more the merrier applies to you because the more people, you know, the more... The bigger a network you can build, the more attention you can get out about these ideas. And the more attention you get out about these ideas, the more people can come into contact, the more people can kind of help us with this mission of making these ideas more well-known. And then you get more people. And then these ideas get even more widespread. And then when they get even more widespread, more people... It's a snowball. And that's not just so we grow as an organization. It's also so the public consciousness becomes more and more aware of these ideas. So they go from these obscure historical events, like the Montreux Conference, to mainstream ideas. And when ideas are mainstream, they go into politics. And that opens the door for actually moving from podcasts, reading old historical documents to actual political change the change we need or the change we really need 80 years ago but it would be best today like the second best time would be today third best time would be tomorrow as soon as possible we need or we need these ideas and to get these ideas into government we need political power for political power we need 
the people because the people is where political powers concentrate and to get the people we need to get these ideas out and that's what i like about this quote is it really summarizes unless the people of the world join this crusade unless you unless you guys unless the listeners help us unless you all kind of join in this fight we're not going anywhere more than ever last line more than ever time presses and this time we must not fail which is the sobering reality of every day that passes the situation is getting worse we steer closer to war, people are suffering, and the most t- most prominent ticking clock of all, the planet is dying, you know, the environment's burning up around us. If we don't take care of that, no more humanity, much slower death than nuclear annihilation, but it's still a oncoming species death, planet death even. And that's something, once again, that best time would have been 100 years ago, second best time today. And the longer we wait, the worse it's going to get. And this is something we cannot fail at. This is not like you lose a war and, okay, well, you know, we've lost the territory. We can fight back. We can revolt. We can eventually take our nation back. No, there's no coming back from extinction. This is a fight we cannot afford to lose. There is no cost too high. Because if we don't win, then we pay the ultimate cost. And that's, that's the sobering reality of this movement is time is pressing on, so we need to move, we need to move quickly, which is something evident in this de- declaration that we need to move quickly, we can't, we can't dial it about. And two, by, ni- like they mentioned, by 1950, we need this constitution set, we need to be working with the UN, because we can't lose. And I mean, I guess they did kind of lose, because the Cold War did happen. But not, not as bad as it could have been, and the world's still here, but that doesn't mean we, need, we can stop fighting. We still need to move. We need to move quickly. And so goes the Montreux Declaration. Those are all my favorite highlights, favorite parts of it. There's much more to the unseen, unsung history of world federalism. But that's about all the time I have for today. There's one more thing I wanted to mention, though. One interesting fact someone proposed for me when I was discussing this episode. And that is... I guess it doesn't really apply to the Montreux Declaration, but it was an interesting tidbit of history. Uh, it comes to us from Nicholas Rowe from Florida, from Young World Federalist. Uh, there was a movement in 1942, so a few years before, uh, of the Student Federalists. So, you know, a movement of Young World Federalists, but not the Young World Federalists, who, uh, there was, so there was a speaker, you know, discussing these things of the atomic bomb of, of World War II, the formation of the United Nations, and uh, Nicholas wanted me to talk about that. So the members of the Student Federalists got up and started chanting, action, action, we want action. Which, you know, I think is the attitude we kind of need to bring in this day of age is, you know, we can't be silent. We need to be clear that, you know, something we need, we need now. We don't need deliberation. We don't need political gridlock. We need action. Action, action, we want action. I mean, we don't want action. We need action. We need it as soon as possible. Well, and that's everything I have. Thank you all for listening. Um, I like I like this podcast format of... As much as I like to talk with guests, I do like this idea of the solo episode. And this may become more of the standard with guests as more of a kind of special thing. Certainly with easier. Um, and I might do more history stuff like this. There's plenty of unseen World Federalist history. Plenty of stuff to talk about with socialism environmentalism. But for now, that will be all. Thank you all for listening. Have a good day.